Good morning, Red Clay. Good morning. What a joy and a blessing it is to be with you as we begin this year of celebration, this 300th anniversary. I am so grateful to Reverend Pringle and to the session, to all of you, for the opportunity to gather on this remarkable year in this unusual season, on this memorable year. A time when the passing of the peace is a mere wave from a distance, when a majority of the congregation is watching remotely, and when we all have to be very cautious and anxious and concerned, it is a difficult time. Yet we begin this year, I hope, with confidence, with optimism, with a sense of excitement about what is to come, if we but first look back at the distance we've traveled. So Red Clay celebrates this year 300 years. 300 years. Now, my family first came here, correct me if I'm wrong, Mom, 50 years ago. Almost exactly 50, a little more, but just about 50 years ago. In fact, when I, when I thought back on it, we were literally here for the 250th. I remember the 275th. I am blessed to have a chance to preach with you for the 300th. And my sense is I won't be with you for the 350th. <laughs> Although hopefully in spirit. But think about the cloud of witnesses and the history that this represents. 1722. What was here in 1722? 1722, a small, hardy band of Presbyterian farmers in the near wilderness gathered on the banks of a muddy, small creek, the Red Clay Creek, to worship. Without a pastor or a building for the first three decades. To put it in context, when a small group of Delawareans gathered at the Golden Fleece Tavern in Dover, to ratify the Constitution and make us the first state, Red Clay was 65 years old. When the Civil War raged, Red Clay was 140 years old. And when a guy named Joe Biden was in the Senate and a guy named Richard Nixon was in the White House, Red Clay was 250 years old. What a remarkable arc. Patience. And persistence has been a part of this gathering, this congregation, for these three centuries. When the first pastor, William McKinnon, who gave his name to McKinnon's Church Road, retired in 1809, they didn't install another pastor for 26 years. Now that's a slow-moving pastoral nominating committee. <laughs> For those who might be complaining. <laughs> Let's be blunt. This has been a hard two years. Even today we are praying for friends and family members who are sick, who are in the hospital, who are anxious. Those we've lost and those we fear we might lose. This is a hard time. Yet this congregation has made it through. It survived the Depression and the Second World War. It survived the revolution and the civil war. It survived the growth 
and the tumult of the 60s and 70s. It survived division and reunion. It has survived and thrived. And although today, although this year might be a difficult moment, I have great confidence in the spirit that has informed and sustained this congregation from its very beginning to today and into its future. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that we should preach, that we should live, with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, so that we are informed and engaged about the events of the day, and yet we see it through the lens of our faith and scripture. Well, I'm here to tell you that the newspapers of the day, certainly of this week, certainly in my work life, are about a little thing that happened a year ago that is no little thing and are about division. I represent you in the capital of the United States. Some of you may know this. And division, sadly, is a critical part of America's politics today and of the tragedy that unfolded a year ago on January 6th and of so much else in our families, our communities, and reflected in our politics. You couldn't read a paper this week without seeing some comment on the division that's happening in Washington. Look, I, I work in a place where we literally can't agree that it's Monday when it's Monday. <laughs> and I know that churches have none of the division that I experience in Washington, that I am here in this beautiful place totally apart from the division of human life. What's Jesus have to say about that? Well, tragically, Division is a foundational part of being fallen, of being human. Back to the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. Over and over in the New Testament, the disciples quarrel among themselves over what? Who is the greatest? Right? Do you remember? I think it's Luke 9 on the road to Capernaum. Right? Literally with Jesus present, the disciples Having just been told, if you would be greatest, you must be least. The first among you will be the last. To be a leader, you must be a servant. Yet they quarrel. To me, the most painful, yet in some ways encouraging, experience of bitterness and division happens on the night of the Last Supper. It's in Luke 22. Jesus Christ himself has washed the feet of the disciples showing them what servant leadership looks like. And yet on the night of the Last Supper, they fight over who will be the greatest. Is it any wonder then that Calvin talked about the, the fundamental fallenness that we all confront in our lives? Is it any surprise that we have some division in our communities, our families, yes, our congregations and our Congress? We are human. And our newspapers reflect that humanity. Yet if we would but be inspired by the surprising example of Jesus and his ministry, where he appeared, under what terms, how he began, how he engaged with the world, how he served, we might yet overcome that division. Because Jesus over and over and over surprised people. He broke out from the expectations of power and the titles and the, the, wrote, the, the things that the people of his time projected to be great. You must do this. You must look like this. You must behave like this. Every single time, he broke their expectations. 
And I wanted to encourage you this morning by telling you just a brief story about something that happens over and over again in the capital of the United States that I suspect breaks your expectations of what happens when Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, two conservative Republican senators from Texas, get together with Amy Klobuchar and Kirsten Gillibrand, two liberal Democratic senators from New York and Minnesota. Every Wednesday morning, about 20 or 24 of us, two dozen of us, gather in the capital of the United States with the chaplain for our weekly bipartisan Senate prayer breakfast. We pray, we talk about our families, we sing a hymn, we have breakfast together, less breakfast during COVID. And then one of us stands up and witnesses about the role of faith in our life. And I have seen week in and week out over the 11 years I've been there the most remarkable moments of vulnerability and humanity. Pretty much every time a senator speaks to that gathering for the first time, they cry. They often talk about the loss of a loved one when their father died of cancer, when their mother was killed in a car accident, how they lost a child, how they are praying now for their dying wife, and how their faith has challenged them, sustained them, and moved them to service. I've heard the most amazing things from people, those of you who follow politics might not expect. But it brings us together, even in that building today riven with division, in a spirit of remarkable humanity and unity. When I've spoken to that prayer breakfast, what do you think I talk about? What do you think I've shared about with two dozen, three dozen senators in the ground floor of the Capitol over and over again? I talk about you. I've talked about the powerful impact of Red Clay Creek Presbyterian Church on my family and my life. I've talked about my mother, Sally, and I know sometimes she talks about me. But for all that sometimes in a little bit here and there she may be proud of me, you have no idea how proud I am of her. Of her serving meals at Emanuel Dining Room, of my father Ken teaching Sunday school and going to Smyrna Prison with a group of men from here to engage in prison ministry, to welcome into our home a convicted murderer as a witness of this church of the work my mom and her friends did to welcome a Vietnamese refugee family, and of how proud I am of you now to be welcoming and sustaining an Afghan refugee family, of the amazing work with Habitat for Humanity and Friendship House, dozens of different ministries over decades and decades, the ways in which you have done service and mission, great and small, from coffee hour to bell choir, from challenging, powerful sermons delivered from this pulpit, when I was a child, by the Reverend Howard McFall, to many, many others. My infant baptism happened elsewhere, but my preparation and confirmation happened literally here. And when I've gone out into the world, and when I've found times and places where I've been afraid or inspired, challenged or encouraged, I have thought of you in gratitude and in prayer. From working with Desmond Tutu in South Africa to visiting refugee camps in Sudan.
the spirit of this place has shaped and informed not, not just me, but dozens and dozens and dozens. In preparing for this, I, I went back and I reconnected with some of the folks I grew up with here. Spoke to Tim Rodden and Dave Hazelbeck and Christy Gleason and a half dozen others. And it's remarkable as we look back on it, how many of the people I grew up with and went to confirmation class ended up in ordained ministry. Tim and I counted seven. Others serve in more fallen ways. (laughs) But yet do our best to carry forward what is so powerful about the spirit of this place. So how does that connect to our scripture passage today that I just read for you. Because remember, we've just talked about what's in the newspapers and now we need to talk about what's in our Bible today. There's an Old Testament passage today in the lectionary in Isaiah that emphasizes that from age to age through storm and fire, we are God's and God is ours and God is faithful and God is with us. But in our New Testament passage It's about the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan by John the Baptist and the appearance of the Holy Spirit in the bodily form of a dove and the proclamation of the anointing of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So in the spirit of a newspaper, I think there is a lot for us to learn in a brief examination of the who, the what, and the where of the story of Christ's baptism. Who? Who is this man baptizing Jesus, baptizing others, and to whom Jesus is drawn to launch his ministry? Who is this John the Baptist? Do you have an image in your mind? Do you have a picture in your head of John the Baptist? Is he wearing a nice suit and tie? Right? Is he a banker? Is he a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a lawyer, one of the elders of the temple? No, John's got wild hair, right? He's wearing, what was it, camel's hair clothing and a big leather belt. He's eating a feast of locusts and wild honey. It doesn't actually say it, but I always assumed he sort of had, you know, big crazy hair and was out there like, right? A voice crying in the wilderness. He begins in jail and he ends up beheaded. So not such a great arc of his career. But the one foretold in Isaiah who is going to make the crooked places straight and the rough places smooth. The one who lays the path for Christ by calling the people of Jerusalem out to repentance. Where? Where does this passage happen? Where does this moment happen? If you've been to the Holy Land and had a chance to go to the River Jordan, it's pretty remote. It's kind of a small, muddy river. A whole lot of bushes. Jerusalem, back then was everything. Jerusalem was the great city with walls and towers and the temple and the center of Jewish life. Bethlehem, a small, dusty town. Even further out, Nazareth, Nazareth, remote. The River Jordan, a long, dangerous journey out into the middle of nowhere, even today. So where are we? Out on the edge, out on the periphery, despite how unusual this is, who comes? Tax collectors, they're cited in another Gospels story here. A Roman centurion, 
Pharisees and Sadducees, the common folk. John the Baptist is out preaching repentance at the banks of the River Jordan, and folk come from all over Judea because of the voice that calls them. So with an unusual who and an unexpected where, we get a what. What happens? What happens in this vital gospel passage? People take a risk. They get out of their comfort zone. They leave the temple. They leave their towns. And they encounter something. Maybe they're there out of just curiosity. Maybe they're there out of following the crowd. But this is a long and dangerous trip for just following the crowd. It is not comfortable. It is not convenient. And as they are there seeking a spirit, they encounter the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit anointing the Christ who was, who is, and who always will be. Another person, yes, but fully divine. The answer to the question is old as Isaiah. If we are God, and if we are of God, and God is ours, when and how and where will we encounter God? This is the moment where Jesus, raised in his own home synagogue, nurtured in Nazareth, certainly familiar with the temple, he could have done this launching of his ministry in the safe and secure and beautiful temple. He does it at the margins, amongst the rabble, with this wild-haired man. Why? Why? And what does that mean for us? Well, let me just go back to the story I was telling you before about how a dozen of us who grew up here 50 years ago, I just went down the hall and looked at my second grade Sunday school classroom. And it looks exactly the same. God bless you. This is an amazing church complex. There are beautiful buildings and great resources. And this is a place that nurtured and inspired so many of us. And there is something important about the bell choir on Christmas Eve, about the stability and the safety and the nurture of Sunday schools and of weekly services and of prayers and of sermons that take us through the Bible. But as I talked with my cohort, the folks I grew up with, for each of us, there was a moment. There was a moment outside the ordinary when we actually encountered the risen Christ in others and thus in ourselves, on a mission trip overseas, serving lunch with the homeless, welcoming a refugee family, awestruck by my own parents' example of risking welcoming a convicted murderer on parole to our home as a child, something whose impact didn't hit me for 45 years until I reflected on it as a parent of three children myself. What a moment of crazy bravery. What has happened in this place over the decades of the lives of those who were raised up with me was risky encounters of Christ through moments of mission, bravery, and risk. So I'll say this. What is it we're celebrating this year? What is it that we are beginning? Why am I here? Why 
is this wonderful state senator here. Why will we read a proclamation from the governor and a proclamation from the state senator? And why do we gather and reflect on Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan by a crazy wild-haired man with the rabble two, century, two millennia ago? Why? And what is it we're celebrating? Is it this building? Is this building 300 years old? No. Is it this pastor? Is, I was going to say the next sentence, is this pastor 300 years old? Is this senator 300 years old? Is this current congregation 300 years old? No. Brothers and sisters, what we celebrate this year is that 300 years ago, a small, faithful, yearning group of hardworking farmers in a remote area of a newly settled community gathered on the banks of a muddy stream to seek the baptism and the presence of the risen Christ. That spirit, that inbreaking, that moment of surprise and of hope sustained them for 30 years without a building or pastor, sustained this congregation for decade after decade. And I don't just pray, I know that if we will but open our hearts this year, we will be anointed for the ministry of the 21st century in this gathering, this congregation, in this place. Matthew 18 teaches, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. So worry not about the building. I know the session would like me to worry about the building. Worry not about the annual mission campaign and the budget, although those are not without consequence. Worry not about how many people are in the pews and whether this congregation will again soon look like the congregation that raised me 50 years ago. Worry only if we have the courage to open the book, to read the word, to be inspired, to hear the voice of that Man in the wilderness calling us to see this amazing thing that God loves us, that God sent his only son to die for us and atone for our sins, and that God, through the Holy Spirit, is waiting to empower us to do remarkable things. Amen.